this moment I am rejoicing in the uh, just auspiciousness of the occasion. Auspiciousness, Kitty Sorrow. I'm getting hammered in here. I can hear our teacher, Ajahn Chah, smiling and saying, if suffering was so bad, the Buddha wouldn't, the Buddha wouldn't have called it a noble truth. This is not masochistic suffering. This is not suffering just so we can rack up the points. Well, I suffered more than you today. No way. I did. (laughs) You didn't see it, but I mean, I racked up some big-time suffering. (laughs) We're not competing for suffering. It's not suffering just for the sake of suffering. But when the heart is willing to turn to the experience of that which is not easy to bear, what the Buddha called dukkha, it ennobles us. It deepens our capacity to be realistic. It deepens our capacity to be human. And in opening to the experience of life in its fullness, the the pleasures and joys and the dukkha, there's more possibility of uh, recognizing what it is we're doing to perpetuate distress, conflict, suffering. And in, in recognizing that, what's called the no, ennobling truth of the cause of suffering, when we realize this clenching, this compulsive owning, taking circumstances and feelings, and opinions as me and mine, and that which we don't like, pushing it out, projecting it all out there or onto someone else. We're having the chance to to see these these patterns which feed the engine, the timelessly running engine of samsara, endless wandering, where we never arrive, never at a place of, of peace. Some people think, oh God, you you Buddhists going on about suffering, 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 pretty, just telling it like it is, kitties are, but it's a pretty grim teaching. (laughs) I'm rejoicing because there's good news. There's the ending of suffering. There's suffering in the ending of suffering. The Buddha sometimes was asked, what do you teach? I teach dukkha, suffering, and the ending of suffering. That is possible in this life. And I teach a path that leads to the ending of suffering. famous phrase of the Buddha that Tanisra and I frequently like to recite. Magga hatakilesa wapattanu patidhammatang. Magga hatakilesa wa. Magga, the path, activity. Hatta means breaks up. Hatakilesa wa. 
it breaks up all that obstructs us, that which sticks us to things, blinds us, gets us deluded, caught in compulsive patterns. The path activity, magahati kilesawa, patta nupatti dhammatang. Patta means the goal, the fruit. In this case, this luminous, peaceful, ever-present home ground that is at the heart of all experience at this moment. But which we overlook when we're, we're so busy caught in the torrent of bhava, what's called becoming. We then overlook the treasure that's here when, when we're leaning into the future. It might be really good activities, not, it's not evil, but we're always going somewhere to success, to solving the problem to the next thing, to fix it. Or when we're recoiling in the process of getting rid of something, fixing something. Again, these aren't necessarily bad activities. But when that sort of those sorts of currents aren't illuminated, then it's, it's endless. Patanupatidhammatang, this, this timeless goal arises in its own time. It's always here, but the falling away of the veils. What are these veils, this, these deep tendencies to always be going somewhere, to be getting rid of something, to be identifying with, grasping or rejecting? Oh, okay, I can hear you, Kitty Sorrow, but can you get to the shortcuts? <laughs> We've got a week. We want it in a nutshell. <laughs> Our Chinese master is funny. He's fierce, but he's so funny. He said, if someone talks to you about a shortcut turn around and run the other way. (laughs) Of course there's skillful means, but this patient staying with the path activity, wanting the the shortcut as the old ancient uh, story in in China of the... um, the master passed on to us about the uh, farmer. It came, Rice Farmer came home excited one day and announced to his kids and his wife, I'm a genius. And they, (laughs) really? Tell us about it. He said, I'm a genius. I've really kind of, I'm going to be increasing our crop. You know those sprouts that were only a quarter of an inch this morning? They're now three quarters of an inch. I meticulously pull them up just a little bit to help along the process. <laughs> and the, I think the kids had kind of sort of shook their heads a little bit. 
but you know the next morning that the the sprouts had uh, been pulled out of the roots and wilted there's a natural organic process that's happening this path activity trusted the saints and sages since ancient time have found it to be true. And I'm still a baby in the cultivation, but I know from what I can see so far, that's why I was grinning at the beginning of the evening, this path is so precious, these teachings are so wonderful. You know, as I told early on when I was in my early life, you know, happiness was getting to the victory, to the championship, to the award. And those were not bad things. I worked hard. But I, I didn't have a real sense of the treasure inside. And in practicing the Dharma, I still try to do the best I can. But in practicing the Dharma, getting the feeling for this original brightness, this treasure, timeless treasure that's always here and now, that's enveloping us. That's the Tathagata Garbha, the womb of the awakened ones, which, which surrounds us, that holds all of our experience, the very listening, that's sensitive right here and now to the sound of my voice coming and going. Path activity. The Buddha talked about this path in three main sections. Sila Samadhi Panya, the, the first one, sometimes to call the Eightfold Path, but if you boil it up, it's, it's really three. Virtue, how we started this retreat. Using this mindfulness, this quality of presence that can attend to, that can witness to. To oversee, to listen into our actions, our speech. As Tanisha was saying, it's important in the mind that we allow anything to come up so that we can see stuff as it is and we feel it all in our hearts. The despair, the hope, the rage, the, the, the helplessness, the confusion, the longing, the, all of it. But that first part of the path is saying that with, with our speech, with our speech and our actions to not put into the world that which increases harm. This is important. And the Buddha didn't word it as a commandment. I'm not, I'm not against commandments, but just notice how that feels, a commandment, a massive... I grew up in a place where this massive finger was <laughs> pointing in the Bible belt in the south. And I had a, a Jewish father, a New York Jew, came down south to work on the TVA, Tennessee Valley Authority Project, to control the flooding of the Tennessee River. But you can't, you can't build a dam on the Tennessee River until you know what's going to be flooded. You can't know what's going to be flooded until you map it. You, gotta, you have to have engineers come down south. And then the, all the understanding around mapping, this was back in the late 30s, 40s, from aerial photographs, uh, really helped in the war effort. But a lot of the guys were off in the war, so they needed math. The people good at math to come help with this. So then my mom from Newport, Tennessee, just wide out in the sticks, they had one stop sign and a, and a railroad track came to Chattanooga and that's how my father and mother uh, uh, met. But New York Jew and a Southern Baptist (laughs) 
that raised some eyebrows. <laughs> and so uh, they wanted to give us a spiritual upbringing, but mom couldn't think about what is it convert to Judaism, and dad didn't really want to become a Southern Baptist. But one day mom saw in the paper a little two-line ad on the back page, are you a Unitarian and don't know it? (laughs) And she said, Mo, do you think we we might be Unitarians? So they took us to this little church, and, uh, but it was uh, beautiful in how it uh, honored. I, I would have heard Buddha and Moses and Christ and doing to others, you haven't doing to you, and you know, but to the sacredness of this mystery. But because we went to a strange place, you know, we would get some major fingers at school saying, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry, but you're going down, buddy can't do anything about it. It's the law. (laughs) And I'd get so upset. I'd get so upset. And she'd say, what do you know about me? We're we're practicing. uh." And my dad was so calm about it. I just... (sighs) And he said, look, they just don't understand. this foundation of concern not to act in ways that harm, to refrain, not to take what doesn't belong, not to use our attractions to exploit, not to use our speech. Just this one. That part of this foundation is considered the foundation of the path is to speak as best one can what is in alignment with truth. As best one can to use our speech to harmonize. As best one can, not just to use the speech to pit people against each other, Not to use speech just to hurt and delight in hurting. We can do that. Not to use speech that's just meaningless. But just that first about false speech. The Buddha said that if you you can just knowingly speak lies, he said karmically, there's nothing then that you can't do. You, you, you can, because then we start even fooling ourselves and don't know what the truth is anymore. And that remember, that don't, you know, okay, we're getting hammered sometimes when we're opening to this dukkha, but just don't forget that even in just this foundation of integrity to the best of our ability, to refrain from that which harms, refrain from seeking nibbana just through intoxication, but to realize it's this instrument of consciousness that can reveal the patternings that perpetuate conflict and suffering, that keep us from knowing our true heart, our true home, the ever-present peace that like a magnet is pulling us that's inviting us, ehi pasiko, as we chant in the morning, come see, come listen. And that in just that simple foundation, when we're feeling despairing, don't forget that when we try to act in those ways, we're offering, as the Buddha said, to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. And trust in time. That's the karmic wheel is rolling. In time we will experience immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. And we're not alone. We have sangha. And let's trust that. 
in a world that's forgotten the value of these guidelines. Now, now in the world, they call someone who's an habitual liar, he's a skillful politician. <laughs> and that ground leads the foundation for samadhi. Sama means a movement together. It, it's the foundation for foundation for us, little by little, letting go of remorse, because we're not continually doing things that harm. And when we do feel remorse for what we've done, we 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 learn from that. That's called conscience. That's helpful. When there's no conscience, when we can do things and just not feel anything anymore, that is sad, that numbness. When conscience is not there, and fear, there's skillful fear of the results of wrongdoing. Those two things the Buddha called the guardians of the world. So when we don't have conscience, when we can just do things and not even feel it, and we don't really pause to consider. It's helpful to be afraid. If I do this, what will happen? That's useful to consider so that we're not just, excuse me, Kitty Sarge, just back up a little bit. If we consider everything, we won't be free. We won't flow. You got to flow. Like water, flow. I hear you. I hear you. I was a prison chaplain. And there were guys that were flowing. <laughs> I used to go see a guy and, who when he was 13 got mad. And he flowed with the anger and picked up a stick and hit his friend and killed his friend. And he'd been in prison for six years. We can spontaneously be hurtful. Spontaneously do things we deeply regret. Pausing, yes, it can be painful, but that space allows us to discern. That's part of the hidden blessing of restraint. And when we do realize and feel remorseful when these memories come up as we're metabolizing our life, that's useful. When a memory comes up, then we in our heart can intend, I am sorry. That came out of ignorance. If I was awakened, I wouldn't have done that. May the blessings of my life be shared with you now. May my life be in service to the welfare of the whole. I I resolve this. There's an alchemy happening that's powerful. Don't undervalue it because now it's the, the external forces and bombs and megaphones can look really impressive and powerful and hurt. They can hurt us. But there's a deep, unseen, transformative power that we can align with. And as we cultivate the middle part of the path, the samadhi that we've been doing, oh, but you say, I'm not good at that. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, not, I'm not, just not good at that. It takes time. You should have seen me in my first year in Thailand. Golly, I, just, I couldn't sit for hardly 20 seconds changing postures and upset with the mosquitoes and everything falling asleep. The walking meditation, I just was, drove me nutty. I just was um, trying to run back and forth. <laughs> then walking barefooted, not being mindful, and barefooted in Thailand, then kicking every stump by accident. But, but little by little by little, don't be in a hurry. Don't worry about the shortcuts. Little by little by little to dedicate ourselves to moments of being with standing, being with walking, being with the texture of speaking and listening, 
being with coming, being with going, being with resting, little by little by little by little by little by little. It'll flow. And allowing our body to, to be our anchor to Mother Earth, this body that's always in present time, to be a resting place for the, uh, the mind and to allow this, this uh, ancient, timeless exchange, dynamic exchange of blessing as we breathe in and as we breathe out sharing what the plant kingdom brings in, breathes in what the trees breathe in. And learning to appreciate that we're porous, that we're not just separate chunks. There's, an in, there's a web. And little by little, we can learn how to take a holiday. Little by little, we can introduce. This is, this is the, the advanced courses when we go home. And that's important, to find creative ways to have pauses. Do you have to answer the phone the first instant? Can we pause? Can we walk across the room? Do we have to just get the thing and get to the next thing? Can we have moments of just enjoying this suchness of moving? Pausing. In the morning, taking even some minutes. Oh, no, 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 but there's this to do and that to do. To just hear that and bless that hurry. So that rather than hurry being me and we get hijacked by hurry, it becomes, oh, a tendency. Little by little we learn to let go and gather and refresh. And then any composure that we have, we also turn that to the flowering of the path. Third part of the path. There's virtue, there's samadhi, the meditation, and then there's panya, wisdom, that which liberates us. Kitty, sorry, you can't do that. Sorry to keep interrupting, but you know, you know, you gotta, you gotta have. Look at us. We're just our minds are wandering, this and that. You know, wisdom is for those guys that can sit like a rock all night. Yes, it's good to keep deepening our samadhi as what, what, as much as we can. But you know. If we're waiting till we get this great state of samadhi before we can do wisdom, as Ajahn Chah would say, you're going to be waiting till the cows come home. He said, if you have enough samadhi to read a book, you can still be enlightened. What? Well, why didn't you tell us that at first day? And I just <laughs> save us all. I didn't say samadhi wasn't helpful. But he would say, you know, even if you're distracted and, you, and you're, 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 you're noticing your, your suffering, and you say, eh, as Ajahn Chah would say, eh, what's that? And then you notice, oh, I don't want that feeling. Oh, let go. Let go. The feeling is just a feeling. famous, often repeated story of Ajahn Chah when you're, he was walking on alms rounds with his monks one day and that's what we would do at dawn. You'd in single file uh, walk out of the forest monastery through the rice fields and into the villages to receive alms. Such a oh, beautiful thing. Those who wanted in the village would they would steam their rice in the morning for the day. So they would be there and the children would announce that the monks are coming. they go, Pramalel, Pramalel. The monks are coming, the monks are coming. So people would be, get ready as you were walking. 
offer a pinch of rice in your bowl quietly or a half a banana or a few leaves as a salad. Sometimes it would be quite a walk. The village, then you'd walk back to the monastery. And sometimes going there or coming back, Ajahn Chah would talk a little bit with his monks. One day passing a big boulder. He pointed to it and said, Is that heavy? And they looked at each other and thought, Well, is this a trick question? They just said, yes, it's heavy. And he goes, no. It's only heavy if you try to lift it. (laughs) It's only heavy if you're wrestling with it. And even if you don't have much samadhi, and you notice that something hurts, it's a nobling truth, something's stressful. What's going on? That's, eh? What's that? It's a noble truth. Turn to it rather than hate it. Oh, it's this damn schedule, excuse me. Can't they see? You know, we can project it out, but what if we just turn and say, hey, what's that? Oh, I, I don't want that pain in the back. I don't want that pain in the knee. Is it heavy? If you're wrestling it, not wanting the pain in the back, not wanting the pain in the knee? Have you had the experience of the mind being restless and jumping all over the place and trying to get it to behave and adding already the pain of a bouncy mind, adding the pain of the judgment, it shouldn't be that way. And what happens if we just say that's how it is? And allow. That's called putting down the rock. Letting it be. If you notice the relief, that friendly mind that says, okay, there's pain. As Noliway was speaking this morning, this powerful dimension of human experience is valence, the valence of feeling tone that things are pleasing and there's something in that Vedana, that feeling that wants us to hang on to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting there. Hoo-ha. And, you know, holding to that. (laughs) But that's stressful. Or painful feeling. Oh, I want to get rid of it. Or neutral feeling. Nothing's happening here. And then having to get to the pleasant one. But the key to unlocking all the profound wisdom doors and insights is with whatever composure we have, noticing the changing nature. What the Buddha called anicca. That that sounds like quite a different practice, Kitty Sorrow. You know, you've taught us about this breath and all that. It's not far away. The calming practices called samatha and the vipassana, the insight practices, yes, they have different names, but they, the Buddha said, they, they should be like two oxen that work in tandem to pull the plow. Or he said it's like a, a, a candle you might have a candle, beautiful candle, even a big candle. I got the biggest candle, most colorful candle, most fragrant candle. But Ajahn Chah says, if you don't light the candle, okay, so you got a big candle. 
Who needs a candle? But if you just, you know, light a match, you, you know, if something's in a room, you hear a sound, what could it be? Certainly in Africa or some places we've, we've lived, you know, who knows? Is it a snake? Is it a wild animal? Is it an intruder? Bring a light. You can illumine and see and negotiate. Just a match doesn't, doesn't last long. A candle gives more enduring. The candle like samadhi when we develop some steadiness of mind, being with mindfulness in the body. Then we light that candle when we ask, what is happening? And when we start to see the changing nature in a moment, and we don't go far, we can do that with the breathing, I'll do it some tomorrow. We can stay right with our still being with breathing, being with body. But as we breathe in, noticing change. As we breathe out, noticing change. Noticing right now the, what is it, Sunday, November the 4th, Dharma talk, Kitty Sorrow. I wonder how long he's going to go. Can't help but remind me of, of a story. I mean, you, this ain't our Dharma talks are nothing in Thailand. They could once the Ajahn Chah was giving a Dharma talk at night, and one of the novices was starting to get tired. So you're in the jungle, and there's the cicadas and the sounds of the forest. But this Ajahn Chah was talking, and this little novice was just wondering how long. I just wonder how late it is, and so he had a flashlight. So he just <laughs> he just you know, why not? He flipped it on and the beam hit the wall and it moved to the clock. (laughs) And all the senior monks, all the monks did a collective sort of sigh. And I don't know, but I'm sure Ajahn Chah smiled and he gave like a two-hour Dharma talk. (laughs) You guys are getting off easy. But this Dharma talk, the sounds and the liking and the not liking, notice that the the noun, the name of Dharma talk, oh God, another Dharma talk, or oh wow, the Dharma talks. But the actuality of a Dharma talk, is fluid and flickering. Just as the actuality of the sensations in our body right now, with the heart beating, and the breathing swelling and subsiding, braided with the sounds of the Dharma talk, and uncomfortable feeling tones, and feeling tones of pleasure and pain are just the same. They're shimmering, shifting, flickering, mixed with the perceptions of liking and not liking. The actuality of this moment, okay, where it's spirit, rock, the reclamation of the sacred retreat right before the election where we got to do something big to make a difference, Kitty Zorro. <laughs> I hear you. But the actuality, come on, let's, let, let, let's be real. The actuality of all those thoughts and perception is a cascading torrent of shifting and changing. This moment becoming otherwise And yet we imagine that we're going to get to success. We're going to get... When we we cling to a pleasant feeling, to being appreciated, to, to success, when we've overcome or to also 
failure seems eternal. But that's the illusion of the syntax and grammar of our language that uh, constellates a sense of solidity and concretization and objectivity in me and you when the actuality is a flow. But our language and the words and concepts we have of good and bad and me and you and not a good place and getting to a good place. Imagine we're going to get there. And and it keeps keeps us, as Ajahn Chah would say, looking for certainty in that which is uncertain, you are bound to suffer. If we're, the sense of the certainty in this world of phenomenon, we're wanting the certainty there, we're going to suffer. Put it, he had earthy images. He said, if you're going to box a tree, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> if you're going to shout at the river for flowing that way and wanting it to flow the other way, he says, you're going to get exhausted. Or my favorite was, if you look at a duck and ask it why it's not a chicken, Quack, 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 there's nothing wrong with that. But imagine, you could wake beings up. Come on, try it, don't be bashful, try it. He said, you know, wanting the uncertain, wanting that which is changing to, and not understanding that, we, we, we keep, Grasping. And when we can start to recognize the shifting, shimmering, changing nature, dispassion starts to set in. What's called disenchantment. That's not something to feel bad about. Oh, buck yourself up, kitty. Um, Take something. Um, but there, there is a disenchantment that is actually a, the Buddha called it nipita, a world weariness that's, a, that's, that's important. We're starting to realize it's not just the next movie's going to solve it. I'm not saying I never watch them. But the next, the next cup of coffee, the, the, the next, we're starting to realize that The full moon turns to the waxing moon. The pleasure turns to pain. The being praised turns to being ignored or criticized. And that weariness, that is the beginning of the great return. That's important. That's the beginning of letting things be. And starting to notice, what, where is all this happening? It's noticing it in the heart the heart that is aware. And the what is changing is if you cling to it and want it to be certain, that's called dukkha. The nature of conditions, it's not a flaw in them. It's nothing wrong. But their nature is unreliable. And therefore, to call it me and mine, yeah, it's a way of talking, my body, my success, my failure. But you can call it that, but that actually it's anatta. It's not self. It's a part of the flow, part of the totality. 
And that in those moments when we're not grasping, thinking the certainty is holding on to this pleasure, this happiness, this success, this insight, or getting rid of that shame, that confusion, that, that's the engine of endlessly being frustrated. And in a moment, remember in a moment, of not grasping, not rejecting the, the original brightness, the ever-shining jewel of the heart reveals itself. Famous phrase of the Buddha, there are no footprints in the sky you won't find the sage out there. Worldly beings delight in complexity. What the Buddha called papancha. Buddha's delight in the ending of that. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there, there are no eternal conditioned things. Buddhas never waver. We look for the sacred, the really wise, out there, and ultimately even if you meet the Buddha, it's wonderful to, be, to meet a Buddha. But even a, a disciple that was so enamored with the beautiful appearance of the Buddha and his voice, and he was just so mindful and kind. And the Buddha thought he's not getting it. It's not just about worshiping the Buddha. So the Buddha sent him out to a branch monastery and the fellow is desolate. Been sent away by the Buddha, sent away by the Buddha. The Buddha appears to him, what's the problem? He said, what's the problem? Got sent away by the blessed one, the fully awakened one. (laughs) What's the problem? And the Buddha said, you think this is the Buddha? Pointing to his body? This body gets old, sick, and dies. All conditions do that. When you see the Dharma, you see the Buddha. When you see the way things are. And when the timeless Buddha that's pulling us all the time, like a magnet, is always here and now. Don't be afraid to notice change. And particularly this concretization, this generation of the separative consciousness that reifies the sense of me and you and my group and that group and projecting out on others. The Buddha took all this conflict and said, yes, even though people want to live in peace and harmony, you know, why do they end up in hate? Someone asked the Buddha, and he said, well, it's because of stinginess. People hold on to what is mine and then want what somebody else has. Then they were saying, well, where does that come from? And, you know, the Buddha said, well, it's dear and not dear. The idea that we have the stuff we like and it's really separate from what we don't want. Notice it's generating this separation. And the questioner said, but where does that come from? And, And the Buddha said, you know, desire, wanting, and desire constellate the sense of something real, It's not here, but I'm getting to it. Don't get in my way. I'm getting to it. My power, my stuff, my profit, my... You get out of the way. Desire. And the questioner said, but where does that come from? And he said, thinking. 
And then they asked again, but where does that come from? And the Buddha said, the origin that leads all the way to this conflict and hostility and the shadow that Tanisha so powerfully shared with us last night. You know, the... unleashed shadow empowered by the megaphone of leaders that lie and project disdain and evil onto others, can't take criticism. The origin of that is this concepts that are tinged with this proliferating tendency, this Simple thoughts that reify the sense of me, I'm in here, you're out there. They're the good ones. <laughs> They're the bad ones. And the key that purifies that this root cause of all this suffering really is an ignorance. And it's not that we're just saying, don't think. The Buddha did a lot of He spoke, he used words and concepts, but there was awareness and he knew that the words and the concepts were changing and empty of solidity and kept returning to that ground, ever-present ground that's always here and now, shining. So our meditation, as we begin to notice change and allow for change, and there's that return to be interested in who is this happening to? That question is turning the mind back to the root, what's called yonisomanasikara, the wise reflection or attending to the womb, the matrix. Or, as the Buddha called it, turning the mind to the deathless. We spent a lot of time in the monastery And our teacher, Ajahn Sumaita, would encourage us. We get focused on who's here and who's not here. Pretty big crowd or pretty small crowd. or But just slight change of perception, noticing the space. Without space, there's no form. We come in, we leave. Is the space disturbed? We come in and we leave. Just to also notice... These so-called forms are manifesting, shimmering with their changing, vibrating nature in infinite space. And the sounds, similarly, we focus, "Mm, I I can agree with that, but Kitty, I'm not so sure about that other thing you're talking about, you know, that timeless, immutable stuff. Give me some proof. And you know, we look at the, at the sounds, whether we agree or disagree or like or not, but what about the silence around the sounds? There is no sound without silence. The sounds come and go. Do we keel over dead when the sound is over? What is there... We enjoy the the thoughts of thinking this or thinking that, but what happens between the thoughts? Do we keel over dead? There's wakefulness. As space is the form and silence is the sound, so is awareness. to all phenomena, all conditions. Every sound is a taxi 
it can take us back to the ground, the ground of listening, Kuan Yin's method, letting every sound return. This returning the hearing is another way, Kuan Yin's meditation is another way of not just being fixated on objects, but as we start to listen deeply, we notice every object is empty. It keeps dissolving into this ground. A question even, what remains? Who is this happening to? That question turns the mind back as we just deeply listen into this, that which has always been here. Who's getting hammered? Me, Dumbo. (laughs) Me, Dumbo. Don't play tricks with me, Kitty Sorrow. It's me, you idiot. Me, you idiot. The space before, the space after. The gaze of awareness change, turning, and start. Every single circumstance, the Buddha says, as its core is boundless, free. Every single thing, all separate, the trillion particularities, merge in the deathless. There is that place, timelessly here and now, where all things merge, all beings merge where our deep kinship is known, our common root. So as our teacher said a lot, our Western teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, mind the gap. Yes, we use thoughts, but start to savor the spaces between thoughts. Start to be interested where the thought comes from, right before the thought. That silence. And notice the thought in, rather than thinking, and there's a place for it, to figure something out, there's a room for that too. But also thinking, just so we get a sense of hearing this inner voice that's generating this me, you, here, there, all the complexity. And just a simple thought, I'm sitting. Hear the space. And as we start to realize we can rest the conceptual mind as we dive into that gap between thoughts. We recognize that heart that where all things merge. Oh, our Chinese master, one who I love this saying, Master Shinfa. All living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. My nature is empty and formless. Kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity are my function. Don't be afraid of allowing things to end, savoring the gaps, savoring the silence and the space.
little by little we will wake up to this deep kinship where all living beings are my family. The universe is my body. All of space is my university. I learn everywhere. My nature, as things keep dissolving, is empty and formless. But is that dead space? No, in that empty space, that deep listening heart responds. Kindness, compassion, joy and equanimity are my function. Don't be afraid. Yes, the forces are terrifying, overwhelming. And Mara, the tempter, the confuser, wants us to give up. We have our army, our army of practitioners. But it's not an army through hate, an army through force. It's a a powerful spiritual army. Hate is never overcome by hatred, said the Buddha. Only through non-hatred is hatred allayed. This is the eternal law. Don't underestimate what we can do. We're, we're going to learn from this, just as our, one of our heroes, Mr. Mandela, incredible, in prison for 27 years. The tiny cell, blinded, having to work in lime mines out on this island, called a terrorist. He was angry, he was bitter, but he realized, hey, I'm here, what am I going to do? He turned it into a university, I'm going to learn from this. We all have our prisons. Turn it into a university. And he realized, he had this insight, just hating and resentment. He realized, he learned the language of his oppressors. He read their poetry. He wanted to understand, who who are these people, these Afrikaans people? And he realized this, this bitterness, this resentment was killing him. And he had the insight of holding on to this bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill your enemies. He saw it. And he, he could have just said, oh, what use are we doing here? He, he didn't. He, they just, they kept a faith. Whatever we do makes a difference. And lo and behold, the 27 years he was uh, freed and led a country in a different way. Not just getting back and crushing, welcoming in. go on forever. You know, he, he touched his guards. He, he made sure to have an Afrikaans attendant. One of his bodyguards came to learn meditation from us. Uh, white bodyguard. He showed up in his fatigues, his gun. <laughs> I want to meditate. bit scary. Somehow we negotiated leaving the gun in the alcove. <laughs> and he, uh, a dear soul, he'd, he'd really, Mr. Mandela touched him deeply. And, and, uh, and I'll just finish with the, the story he, he told about being part of Mandela's security. And while he was president, there was 
the apartheid regime was pretty insidious. It, it, it put all kinds of misinformation, getting different black groups to fight one another so that they could say, see, these people can't govern the country. They're just killing each other. So there was all kinds of stuff going on that was the legacy of apartheid that he had to deal with as president. And so while he was president, near us where our little center was and where we were, Tanisha and I were teaching, in KwaZulu-Natal, Richmond, there was these ANC, Mr. Mandela's party, African National Congress, people were being assassinated and killed. I mean, there was a low-grade war carrying on. And Mr. Mandela thought, I'm going to go there and be there, see the people there. So my friend and, uh, and the security detail in their, what do you call it, uh, group of cars, motorcade. motorcade. They went, and uh, <laughs> presidential motorcade, the people were out, and there were a lot of people that were killed there. And they arrived in Richmond, and Mr. Mand- my friend was in the car with Mr. Mandela. Mr. Mandela said, I'm going to get out talk to the people, and my friend said to him, Mr. President, you can't get out of the car. They'll shoot you. And he said, Mandela turned to him and said, I'm the president of this country. If I can't walk on the streets, of my own country. You might as well shoot me right now. And they described that he opened the door, got out, and walked amongst the people. And that the the wave of the power of his trusting that there is a underlying humanity that can be touched, that was willing, willing, yes, to... Our life is uncertain anyway, but that was willing to be vulnerable, but that that wave was just subdued. And our friend was uh, deeply touched. And even running his security company now, he wants to be that way, to train himself and his people how not to react, but to, to be guardians, to be loving, to be wise. So let's take heart. Practice this path. Trust that, that the path will, little by little, break up the obstructions so that we can know for ourselves the place where all things merge. And remember our deep kinship with all things and all beings. <laughs>